Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here's a double shot from our featured artist today, the International Treasure. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs. Empty rear view 
I've gone to something better and new Now there's just a simple fact She'll never walk in my shoes She may regret all I didn't do But I never will treasures from their brand new release and we got ted and doyle on the line right now hey guys how you doing good afternoon good to be here hey how's it going yeah it's good to have you guys on now um we always start off by giving our fans the opportunity to really get to know an artist uh and the best way to do that is through your journey how you got to where you are today so give us the story of international treasures and of course each one of you ted and doyle how you got to this point in your career well um this is doyle speaking and uh uh, ted and i met through uh online uh facebook group for called the singer songwriter songwriting challenge um i had heard another artist um, live and had um, started to follow that artist, and uh, she kept mentioning this singer-songwriter-songwriting challenge. And so, in early 2020, I started writing, and Ted had already started writing with that group. I think was it a year prior, Ted? Mm, yeah, probably. Yeah, about that. It was before COVID. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were both writing as a part of this group, and. Um, one summer, Ted uh, wanted to do co-writes for all of his um, for all of his. Uh, prom- it's a prompt-based group, and so he wanted to do co-writes. And he asked me if I would co-write, and we did a co-write together, and it went very, very well. And so, we, after the season was over for the songwriter challenge, then we started co-writing together. So, okay. Now, uh, Ted, what what was your beginnings as a musician what what was that moment that that brought you to music and you wanted to make this a career oh yeah so um i think that all started before i even knew how to play an instrument when i was very young kiss was becoming a thing um you know and and i think the allure of their comic book image you know they looked like superheroes and I thought they were cool, and uh, and then when I finally heard a song, I thought it was cool. I was probably six or seven, 
And yeah, it was many years later that I finally got a guitar and started learning how to play and played bass in bands in the 80s. Um, I don't recall a time where I never, at least young, where I never thought I was, I always thought this is what I'm going to do. So here we are. I don't know. I'm 52. So most of my life, I wanted to do something creatively with, with, uh, with music and have kind of pursued that. Okay, how about yeah. you, Dora? What was that moment for you where you knew music was was a career choice? Um, I grew up in a house uh, that always had a guitar, always had music. My dad was always singing to us and uh, showed me basic chords when I was about the same age you mentioned, Ted. And um, so it was always just a part of whatever I did. Um, and I, um, I, I went to school and did some um, college as a uh, music major, ended up as a music, music minor, and then really about six years ago really got deep into the songwriting part of it and knew that that is something that um, I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Um, it, it feels like a calling to me, and, so, uh, and to have met Ted along the way has just been so um, fortunate for me. Um, he and I are similar in age and similar in, in direction, and uh, it's been just a really great melding of two um, passionate musicians. Okay. Now, uh, let's talk about uh, this new release. Uh, when you guys were putting this together, did you have a specific goal or a specific message that you wanted to get across with this release? I... Um, I, I would say that a lot of the vision for this project came from Ted. We were doing um, a gig and uh, we were being shown around the property after the gig. And one of the areas that we were shown was this studio that's made out of a Quonset hut. And it's just this beautiful studio space. And as we were walking in, there were musicians, a lot of bluegrass players, and they were playing. But it was just such a warm, rich sound. And uh, we weren't five steps in. And Ted turned around and looked at me and said, we have to record here. And I said, Ted, we don't even know these people. But through the magic of Ted Einishevitz, um, we got to know the folks and um, uh, ended up recording in that very space. And it was kind of that um, that aha moment for both of us where we're like, this, we want this kind of sound on this record. We want this warm, kind of rich 1970s LP vinyl kind of sound. Uh, and um, our engineer was able to get that. Um, our musicians were able to record that and um, and, and that's kind of the impetus for this for this record. And, uh, but what else did I miss, Ted? No, well, I think that that hits the nail really hard. We had we were demoing songs probably for about a year. Talked about making a record together. Didn't really know what that would look like because each each of us had made our own albums, and we were actually working on an album of Doyle's too. So in that sense, we were collaborating in that re- for, in that regard. But as we talked about doing something of a duo type vibe once we walked into that room it was like oh my gosh we've got to record all this like live like no no like just piecing together a rec- an album which is common today let's go back to the way they used to do it and just get it live get a vibe over getting perfection and um i think so much more happened than we even anticipated we hoped this would work but but oh my gosh it just it um it was just the sweetest the sweetest experience for both of us i think yeah Okay. Um, the first track of the album um, is uh, a shortened version of a song, and it's the first song that we played together as a group. 
and there's just this this, this feeling of discovery with that. Uh, you can hear it. Um, it's kind of like, oh, this is going to work, and everybody just jived together, and um, it was just this beautiful moment that um, our engineer was able to record and uh, capture. All right. Now, let's talk a little bit about you guys as songwriters. You know, every songwriter has their process. Uh, some subscribe to the Nashville mentality where songwriting is a craft that you practice every day. <clears throat> you create songwriting times. You you uh, make appointments for co-writing and so on and so forth. Others are more inspirationally driven. When an idea strikes them, they write. Or they may have a bunch of little scraps of paper and they put it together and they say there's a song here somewhere and they sit down to write. What is your processes between the two of you that um, helps you tap into your muse? So, um, I think there's similarities between us and differences. I think until this singer-songwriter challenge group, um, I was probably the one who would wait for inspiration. And I might you know, email, I, what I do, I still do this. I email myself stuff almost daily where just a little thought that comes to mind or a line. I record little pieces on my phone almost daily. <clears throat> um, but I would never really sit down with intention to write until the songwriter group. Because once we got a prompt, it was like, okay, now you've got a week to finish this song. And it's gotten me more, um, uh, to me, I think of it like, um, I always go back to my kid in Little League Baseball. You, you do the practices and the drills to kind of get muscle memory built. And so it's trained me to go, you, you can write at any time and whether it's good or bad and you can delight in that. So that part is um, really just become part of my, my makeup. I don't know that I do it every day. I would love to. I'm trying to form that habit, but I do sit down very regularly and just kind of noodle around and or say, well, I think it's time to try writing a song. Um, I do it uh, for certainly a few days a week um, now versus before it might be I might not do it for months right I don't know about Doyle how that applies to you I think you're right that we're we're similar in a lot of ways in that through this group um, it's a prompt based group and so we get a prompt and have a certain amount of time to write the song and then record ourselves um, performing our new song and through doing that over the years and, and writing regularly um, it's just like you strengthen this muscle that um, yeah we I, I can write at any time I'm not guaranteeing it's, it's any good, but that's not the point. The point is the process. And so I'm definitely a, um, a quantity writer. Um, uh, I think Pat Patterson um, from Berkeley mentions this where he says, you know, 10% of what you write is going to be good, and the other 90% will not be. And how big would you like your 10% to be? If you want 10 great songs, write 100. If you want, you know, 100 great songs, write 1,000. And so that has always been my mentality is I'm, not so concerned about quality as much as I'm concerned about quantity. Um, and then once I hit upon those good ideas, then I refine and I polish and I make it uh, the best it can be. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, Ted, you had mentioned earlier that um, you use your cell phone to kind of capture ideas. And, you know, technology has brought us all some great tools, whether it's the cell phone or a home recording studio to take, you know, lay down structure. What are some of the other tools that you have found to be indispensable to you as a writer? Um, I think uh, you know, I, I wish I were 
as good as Doyle is with like writing by hand because he can do this stuff in notebook. Uh, having an iPad or anything with a keyboard to capture my my like a lyrical thought or anything um, is important. Um, Thesauruses type, type things like find better words than my very basic vocabulary. <laughs> uh, super handy for me. Um, and then beyond that, like recording things with the phone is just like I will do. We'll do it basically along the way. And Doyle, I do this together, or a part where it's like as I'm getting places, I get it recorded it, it, as in it kind of in motion. Um, and then for me, another part, and that kind of gets beyond the, the, <clears throat> the writing part, but I love demoing songs and even potentially recording them myself because I, I just love the, or even in a studio, whatever the way is, I think the songwriting doesn't end at that point. I love the crafting of the song really to the finished product, if you will. It's just so exciting to me to like see what happens, the magic of making, what's, what's the song going to be like, you know? What's its personality going to be like? Almost like watching a kid grow, right? It's really exciting to me. So I think um, I have very limited skills with regards to doing any kind of tracking, recording, mixing, but it's I use them to kind of flesh things out, and it's, it's fun for me at times. I don't do it with every song, but when I feel like it, I might want to chase this, it's kind of fun to demo things out. Okay. How about you, Doyle? Um, what, what, what are some of the tools you have found to be important to you? Um, before I wrote with Ted, um, I had written only in person um, for co-writing. And um, when Ted and I started writing together, we we have a bit of distance between us. And so he kind of trained me on how to do this, where you come up with a, a, a maybe a riff or a hook or some kind of line, some kind of a do, you know noodle on the guitar, and you record it and send it over through email or however we wanted to share it. And then I take it and develop it and then send it back almost um, kind of like a back and forth over the, over the net, you know, uh, with, a, with a tennis racket and a ball. Um, but w- then what we'll do is we use um, uh, Google Doc or some kind of a shared document. Um, I know that uh, Apple has OneNote or, or uh, something of, of that nature. And, and so we've got a, a live document that we can access at the same time and we can write that way as well. Um, and Ted's being very, very modest. Ted has... Uh, uh, written and recorded uh, extensively. So he's got stuff that he's recorded commercially, but also stuff that he's recorded in, in his studio at his home. And he releases several albums a year. Um, he's very, very prolific. And when he talks about watching songs grow up or, or you know, enjoying that process, this is one of his superpowers from my perspective, because as we write together, Ted will say, oh, I hear organ right here, or I hear that this chorus should be, you know, be repeated here, or this verse here. He's, he's thinking structure and production as we're writing it, and that's, that's really exciting for me because um, I, get a, I get a jolt of energy off of that because I don't uh, have that skill, and to watch him kind of mold this song as we're, as we're writing it is really, really um, satisfying and fun. Okay. Now, you know, one of the big buzzwords here in the industry lately has been artificial intelligence. Um, And it's permeated all aspects of our lives. And it's coming, uh, if not already here. And a lot of it's going to be pretty uh, helpful to us as the human experience. Um, But there are tools now in the uh, for the uh, musician and the songwriters, Uh, lyric uh, generating AI, melody generating AI, 
core generating AI, so on and so forth. Uh, even Ed Sheeran admitted to utilizing some of these tools as idea generators, as, as a way to find inspiration. Um, what do you think AI's impact is going to be on the music industry as we move forward? Well, I think it's going to be um, huge, um, and the impact is going to be difficult to measure until it's already happened, right? Um, because it's so it's so brand new. But one of the things about this album, Together We Are the International Treasures, is to me it kind of um, is a little off, uh, comes out of left field um, in that regard, because it's so warm and live, and we, we recorded live off the floor um it's it's spontaneous it's it's definitely against that ai um uh that's coming or uh it's against that leaning uh of of trying to make everything studio perfect um it's got this kind of 70s vibe where you know um the band is playing live together and uh, it's it, it is what it is with all its warts but also with all its glories as well and so when you when you hear the sound you you're not thinking oh this is technically perfect this is um this is an experience right um and we're taking you along on a journey yeah okay now um let me let me ask you this one of the um tough things i think for a young songwriter is when to stop when to put the pen down allow the song now to like a teenager growing up, you know, go out into the world and get mm-hmm. the experiences or the the fingerprints of the other musicians, the um, the producer, so on and so forth. What do you use as your quantifier to determine when a song is ready to bring to the studio and and to go to its next phase of life? Um, that's a really good question. I think. For me, it's probably it's, it's a pers- personal preference thing. Probably, um, we write a lot of songs, and it's funny because both of us have joked about. Um, in fact, it happened. We wrote a song together. And <laughs> wrote it together. I sent him. He's like, "What do you think of this?" He goes, "Oh, cool. Can I see the lyrics?" And when did you write this? I'm like, "Doyle, we wrote this." <laughs> because we write a lot of songs, um, often it could be where you forget about them and. And so what I might do is like, hey, I think I'm starting to feel like it's time to work on a project, an album, EP, or whatever. Or, you know, whether it be my own or someone else or, or Doyle and I are doing something, then I start to cull through things and see which songs excite me. That's one thing that I might do. Because we're writing so fast that you would just kind of lay the song down and let it rest, right? Another thing could be, if you finish a song, you, you kind of know, it's like, oh my gosh, and, you're, and I'm so excited about it. Well, sometimes I could be like, this is the best thing in the world, which may, often is not true, but it may, <clears throat> may be true that it's, that it's worth chasing. It may not. And fleshing them out either like in a live setting, uh, we play like a brewery open mic type of thing and try the songs out and um, see if they, how they play, uh, or just, uh, bring it into and demo it out and then see what happens. Um, your question, your question about how do you know when the song is done? I feel like the songwriting challenge thing helps us with that because we got a timeline, right? And it may not be a usable song or a complete song, but it's done because I have to lay the event down, right? It's almost like taking a test. Time's up, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm. And so that, that's how, what, I, that's what it looks like, yeah. 
Okay. Well, and just to piggyback off of Ted a little bit, um, with for me, when I write, um, I, we're both writing so much, but for me, um, I'm, I'm giving time, and it seems the thing that floats or means something to me after a couple of three or four weeks of letting it rest, that's something that's important, and then trying to figure out how it fits into the next album or the next project. Um, so, you know, I've got favorite songs that um, haven't been able, I haven't been able to record because they haven't fit into that project's um, uh, vibe or the family, you know, that song family. But to me, it's it's always time, and if it's sticking with me, then I know it's got some it's got some likes. Okay. Now, um, you had mentioned earlier that when you went into the studio, that you did it live from the floor. Um, and you know, as guys that you know do not only the project together, but also your individual projects, when you get into the studio, is this the process that you prefer when you go in there to get the sound that you're looking for? Well, I'll, I'll give my answer first. Um, uh, this was completely different for me. I had tried live off the floor before and had limited success. And so when Ted um, suggested this, I, it was complete faith in Ted's vision and, and Ted as a musician. Um, he's got this really um, amazing quality where when you play music with him, you, you know you can step off the cliff's edge and he's got you. And so when he said we're going to do this live off the floor, I was like, okay, it's going to be warts and all. And it turned out to be more uh, um, amazing and, and far fewer warts than, than I would have guessed. Um, we, we just really, we, we stumbled upon something very special with this. And, and I think um, in, in discussions with Ted and other songwriters, uh, we talk about the importance of trying something different. If you're always doing the same process, you, you will more likely end up with a similar project. And so this, for me, was real growth as an artist because it was a process that I was not having success with, but being able to do it with Ted, we, we came upon some success. Okay. Now, uh, tell me a little bit about the lineup on this. Is there anyone else playing with you guys besides just you two? Yeah. Yeah, we... Um, <laughs> we'll start with Joe Meyer. Joe Meyer, Joe and Susan Meyer own uh, Century Oak it's the Quonset hut that we recorded in. And so Joe plays upright bass. He plays many instruments, but he plays upright bass and he played that on the record. He also lined us up with the majority of the musicians. Um, like he knew he, all these people that were playing in the room as Doyle talked about when we walked in, he, Joe's like, I can get you a fiddle player. And he got us Mikkel Johnson. I can get you a mandolin player, uh, Brent Fuqua, uh, pedal steel, Dean Severson. And, uh, Ricky Parker on drums, and he just brought these people in <clears throat> into the session and um, basically built a band for us. Um, and the first time we met many of them, let alone played with played with them live, was was in the studio, and it was <laughs> they're, they're just super talented. We brought in some other people to do some overdubs. Nikki Lemire played harp and piano and sang. Um, uh, Steve Peffer, he lives in Nashville. He played organ and piano on a couple songs. Uh, Troy, our engineer, did some percussion. Um, am I missing anybody, Doyle? I think you nailed them all. Uh, maybe Chris Holm on the harmonica. He's one of our, our Minnesota friends here who is a, 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 a gigging musician doing four or five nights a week. And he offered to do some harmonica on one of the songs for us. Yeah. And our love choir, which is many of the people listed and then our wives also. We think we had some kind of uh, group or gang type harmony or vocal parts that we did together, uh, which was really 
feet, yeah. Okay. Now, um, let's uh, talk about getting it out there. Uh, once you get something recorded, you need to get it to press and, of course, to radio uh, and create the buzz. And you're working with Krista Valenkis of uh, uh, Elephants and Flowers Media. Tell me about that relationship. Well, for me, this is my third project working with Krista. And um, when I first met Ted, he talked about publicity being kind of a, almost like building a wall block by block. And um, Krista's just been amazing um, at doing that for us. Um, getting getting this to um, more ears, um, and so I, I feel like we're very very lucky to to work with her. Um, but it's a it's a bit of a process. Um, we've we've had uh, things that have extensive radio play, um, and that doesn't always translate into you know other areas of like you know attendance at shows or you know album sales. And so I, I really go back to that initial um, metaphor that Ted gave me about building a wall. And uh, for me, the the publicity thing is so important for this album just because, um, like Ted said, our engineer, Troy Foss, uh, put his heart and soul into this, and as did everybody else on this record, and and particularly Ted as well. Um, And so it's like uh, when people put 150% of themselves into something and you come up with that studio magic um, on the recording, um, you 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 owe it to the recording to make sure it gets out there. yeah, so that that would be my response to that one. How about you, Ted? Yeah, that is that is, that is 100 true. I think um, <clears throat> uh, you know the one thing with all of these musicians and Troy and Doyle and me and our our wives and all this, the thing that I think makes we have all these amazing talented people that surrounded us. That but that's the the minor part. The major part is the big hearts. All these people that we didn't know now they're like our best friend. They're our family, and um, we've been so lucky and blessed. In that regard, that yes, we want to promote this as much as we can, and Krista's been great. A couple other really cool things Krista does, I worked with her on an early album of mine probably five or six years ago, and um, she doesn't just do the promo piece. She, she sits you down and says, what are your goals? What do you want to do within a year, within five years? Uh, you know, what, what do you want to get out of the promotion here, but what else do you want to do with your career? Where do you want to be? Um, and it gets you thinking not so much like so that I can hope and wish, but like, okay, if you want these things, how do you try to accomplish them if it's within your grasp, if it's within your control? And that's been a huge thing for me anyway within working with Krista and others like her, yeah. Okay. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about the music industry. We all know that um, that streaming has become the preferred way the consumer today consumes music. And for the consumer, it's a, it's a no-brainer. I mean, you know, for 10 or $15 a month, um, you, know, you have access to over 100 years of recorded music. And as someone of a certain age, uh, I have purchased my music several times over, and I'm getting tired of doing it. I mean, I bought it on vinyl, A-track, cassette, uh, CD downloads. Uh, so, you know, for me, as the, on the consumer side of things, this is a great you know, innovation for me. I don't have to store it. I don't have to, you know, put it anywhere. I can just access anything that I, I that you know, I need a whim for at that moment. But for the artist, it's it's a double edged sword. One, you're not getting paid composite to your um, the work that you put in to this uh, product that you put out. 
Uh, and two, uh, if you decide not to participate, if someone goes looking for you on, say, Spotify and they don't find you, the fact that there are over 20,000 songs being released a week, you become irrelevant. Immediately, they just move on to the next thing. So you're kind of in that position where you can't not participate in this because of the marketing and, and, the, and the reach that these platforms have. And the problem is, is recorded music now no longer has that status of product. Nobody wants to buy it anymore. Mm-hmm. How has this shift in perception by the consumer affected you as an artist? Well, I think it's um, it's still in progress, right? Um, and we're watching the people around us, other folks in our circle, trying different approaches to uh, to make what they do, to, to pay for what they do, right? Um, it, it's, it's something that is still, um, there's no one pathway that's become clear. And I know both Ted and I are on Patreon, and so that's one way that we try to... Um, you know, get, uh, um, monetize what we've done, but also get it so that we're we're focused on the next project, right? So we can continue to make what we what we want to do. Um, you talk about you know the streaming services; they've been such a boon to the consumer, but it almost ends up devaluing um, what art uh, is involved in making the music. Um, but on the other side of it, um, it, this is the golden age of music, right? Because you've got so much being produced because it's easily produced. Some of some people are doing it, you know, right in their basements, like Ted, and you've got all of this music that's able to be um, available to everybody. And so it's it's a lot like the television industry, where you know all of these um, streaming services make everything instantly available. Um, and through the, the sheer volume, you get better and better quality things. Um, but, you know, like, uh, I'm sure you're aware that, you know, BMI is in this process of maybe being acquired by New Mountain Capital. And part of, you know, the, the thing about that acquisition was that, you know, through streaming, so very, very few of the people who put their things out on streaming, um, uh, are you know like the top ten percent? Ten percent of um, the people on the streamers are making you know um, any any real money. So it, it's it's forcing a, a, a huge shift, a seismic shift in in the music industry. And I think we're all you know doing our best to try and figure out what comes next. Well, yeah, and and you know that's the big thing is that um, there is always something coming up next. Um, even if you look at the digital revolution, it has the timeline always suggests there's something else on the horizon. You know, we started with LimeWire and Napster, and you know, everyone was like, "Yo, oh, these will never go away; they'll be here forever." And then along comes Apple with iTunes and selling us iPods. And you know, um, oh my God, Apple is going to own the music industry forever. Well, where the hell are those iPods now? Well, they're sitting in the kitchen junk drawer collecting dust. And, you know, and then along comes Spotify and takes over that industry. And everyone's saying, oh, Spotify is so big, they will never get rid of it. Well, that's a load of crap because it's just the timeline suggests that there will always be something new down the line. And I've been watching this technology of streaming services that have been developed 
utilizing the blockchain, the technology for cryptocurrency. Uh, Audius.co is one that comes to mind. And one of the advantages of these services is, number one, um, they're decentralized. In other words, no one company or person can own this service. It's owned by the fans and by the artists themselves, uh, which really takes out you know, the, the owner of Spotify who's probably making more money a week than any of the 20 artists on his platform. Um, right. So it takes that out of the mix, the corporate greed structure out of the mix of these of the streaming services. And it's more of a direct relation between the fan and the the artists themselves. And they're claiming also that they can pay up to 80 percent of the incoming revenue directly back to the artists themselves. You know, of course, based on their streaming and so on and so forth. What do you think of that as a potential for the future of the music industry when it comes to the consumer and consuming music? That's a, that's a great question. I wish I had a better handle on on NFTs and, and how that works. I know some artists, some and some major artists have have kind of jumped on that. Um, you know, I think my and this is just my opinion is, is like every of the industry has always kind of, there's been some really cool things that have boomed and then somebody finds a way to get rich off of it, off the backs of others. And that's never not been that way as long as popular music has been a thing. It's always, it started, I mean, I think popular music started because somebody was getting rich off the back of an artist. Mm -hmm. I think, um, and you said something that that really keyed in, that that just kind of got my brain going, like, part with the connection between the artist and the, and the fan. <clears throat> and I think to me, that's the most important thing, whether that fan is like, whether you're Taylor Swift and you have millions of fans or whether you play a show for 30 people and, and, or two people out of that group <clears throat> connect with you, uh, either that night or for, for the rest of your life. Um, we're very lucky in that we have our little family of people who follow us and it's tiny, but it's, that excites me more than like, how, do, how am I going to get, all my films, I'm making sense here, and I'm not even saying that my where I'm going is right, but that gets me more excited every day than whether I'm getting all the money that I feel I should get, if that makes sense. Does that make sense what I'm suggesting here? Yeah. yeah. I don't know really more key than those connections. So you think of old minstrels where they'd go town to town, and I know I'm speaking romantically here, and they would play for people, and they would feed them, and sometimes you might get a rich backer, that's what you think of Patreon, those types of things. Who, who might give you some kind of funding and you're basically living kind of uh, town to town and um, being creative and, and, and painters would do this and writers. And, um, and I think that to me will never go away. So when you, you think of um, what the industry is doing with streaming and all these things or radio has done or whatever <clears throat> um, record companies, or you think of AI and the, the kind of the thing that sometimes scares people, the heart will never go away. There's a humanity that we have that, that we all want and we connect through it. And I think our art allows us to do that. And I think that will feed it. I, I isn't going to put food on your table, but that feeds us in a way that no monetary value could. I don't know if that's... Doyle, do you have anything smarter than me to say? <laughs> <laughs> I think that you hit upon the uh, the heart of it there, the fact that it, it all involves connection. And, 
um, when you can connect with a listener, that's there's a certain level of elation and satisfaction because uh, whenever I'm able to write a song that connects with somebody, it's ultimately a way of saying, hey, we're not alone in this. We're together as, as human beings. We're, we're all part of humanity. And what, what I feel, you feel. And there's that, that's, that's something that's, that's very deep. Um, in terms of, you know, the NFTs, uh, I would be interested to hear what you are seeing, Richard, in terms of um, across the industry, because I think for a certain level of artists, like, you know, your Taylor Swift, um, maybe that would be something that would work out. But are you seeing that that's filtering down into um, other artists who maybe don't have that kind of um, listenership? You know, I am seeing it, and I think as as the industry as a whole is, we seem to be uh, heading towards a future where record companies are not going to be as powerful as they used to be. Uh, if you notice mm-hmm. that a lot of these record companies are investing in legacy catalogs of publishing, that seems to yep. be where they're putting their efforts and their money, and they're not really creating development deals with artists they're not really going out of their way to break new artists um there's a few here and there but uh as a rule they're kind of sitting back a little bit more Uh, i think we're getting to a point where um it's going to be more of a direct relationship between artist and fan to give you an example there's a site called royal.io that allows you to create these NFTs that represent either your publishing royalties or your streaming royalties, whatever the case may be. And one of the rap artists did this. He he made enough of these NFTs to cover one half of the uh, streaming royalties on two songs, sold it to his fan base, made almost $600,000 in upfront money, and now had 3,000 fans that had an economic interest in making sure that his music is streamed. They now are investors in that song. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where the future I see, with especially with these NFTs, is it's a way to kind of almost sell stock in a song. Yeah. You know, I mean, if we had that available back in the day and, you know, we bought a piece of Let It Be or or Born in the USA, I mean, God, we'd be sitting pretty right now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. these are the things, you know, even at, at the lower level, you know, look at it, look at it almost as a penny stock. You know, if you're going to ask someone to participate let's say in your patreon where you know you give us x amount of money and you get a t-shirt a hat and a cd you know and of course whatever they give you is going to be two or three times the value of what they get here you can say hey if you buy this nft for 25 dollars you get 0.015 percent of my streaming royalties for as long as you own this nft and as the way these new streaming services are uh, set up, they're based on these smart contracts. So the administration of these NFTs become automatic, uh, where every time you know there is a royalty generated from the streaming, it 
automatically splits it out to whoever is getting it, whether it's through an NFT or through the direct to the artist channel. You know, so it's almost, um, how can I put it? Uh, Replacing the record company because now the fans are your investors. They are now your record company. Um, what do you guys think of that as, as a potential for the future? Well, I, I, it's exciting on one side because of that direct connection between the fans and the artist. Um, you know, my wife and I have been doing a little traveling over the past couple of summers in any public space you go into where there's music offered. You listen to those, those songs and they're from the 70s. They're from the 80s. They're, they're the hits of all of that time. And so that's why you're seeing your record companies um, investing in those legacy um, uh, uh, rights uh, and buying up, buying up those catalogs because that's what people are listening to. Um, it, it's, it, there's a comfort there. But while Ted and I are out you know, uh, with the International Treasures playing, there's also this uh, appreciation that, that lives at the ground, the grassroots level of, of um, original music. Um, you know, we've we've both know people who are you know in in bands that are, are cover bands, and they do very very well because they serve that segment of the population. But there's also because of the plethora of music out there, people who are interested in original um, music, original songwriting. Um, so if there's a way that we can use technology to to bolster that relationship from, for those listeners that are interested in what we're offering. For sure, that's a step forward because, like you say, the record companies aren't, um, it's just not profitable for them to, to develop artists as much as they did in the past. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, one of the things, um, you know, that when the pandemic hit, that a lot of artists started to go on to social media uh, because touring had shut down and they started to create content. You know, of course, everyone took out their cell phone and did some live streaming and, you know, on Facebook Live or Instagram Live, whatever the case may be. And as the weeks turned into months, you know, we started going on Amazon and buying better microphones, better cameras, maybe a little ATEM, you know, uh, switcher, you know, and we started to get better at creating these live streams. But then as the months turned into years, um we had to get more creative and the artists started to realize that this was an amazing branding opportunity where they started to give more personal kind of content whether it's you know hobbies that they do or uh, their kids their their pets their um uh, their barnyard animals or you know um, like Mindy Abar does a cooking thing with a husband and they have their, their own line of wines or um, you know whatever the case may be going hiking bringing along you know your camera or your phone and, and shooting some things and that you do on your daily hike uh, so and the fans really gravitated to that because if you think about it over the last 30 years we've been spoon fed this authentic raw kind of content through reality shows so we're very acclimated to you know that reality show kind of mentality uh and the artists have really picked up on that you know especially artists like you know taylor swift who's a genius at at you know um, connecting with her fan base through social media um 
what are some of the things you guys are doing that utilizes content and social media to kind of bring people into the top of your funnel to, to kind of get them uh, interested in you and what you guys are putting out? I think one of the bigger things is social media has has been a huge help for us in that, well, number one, we are a group because of social media. Our singer-songwriter group is is something that is primarily, you know, driven by a Facebook group, right? So, um, and it has drawn us all into a personal, like we, we met probably 90% of, of certainly of the regulars who are on there um, in person and we become great friends with these people. It's really interesting in how that happened and I kind of feel like the, the separation from, from you know, everybody was uh, sheltered in place and all that, once it opened up, that's when it started to be like, hey, we're going to start meeting more in person. Going to see each other play and so, so supporting each other and celebrating each other. So social media, in my opinion, has been a huge help for us in that regard. Uh, it's also um, a time time consuming thing, you know, trying to figure out how to navigate those waters. So, but Doyle and I both tend to be personal, and so we kind of keep it very um, much like who we are. So you see, I love that nowadays about where artists are no longer. Um, like my big heroes growing up in those '80s and all those groups were so separated from you. you know, you're, you're the fan, and they're the the artist, and and that's it. But now, like you get to know these people, right? Or they get to know me as an artist, right? Um, and I think that's really, really cool. It feeds me more than uh, <clears throat> hey, somebody streamed my song. You know, <laughs> it's it's kind of funny you mentioned uh, barnyard animals because I've been uh, seeing Kevin Bacon and Kara Sedgwick. Uh, performing songs uh, uh, in front of their goat or their, you know, their cow, and and kind of giving that behind the scenes look at, hey, this is what our life really is like. And one of the things that Ted's a real genius at is coming up with ideas that we can use on social media. And so, we, our last two singles off of this album, we were able to highlight um, and do short little videos um, at, at different local establishes. Um, and so, I'm, I'm up here in Bemidji, and we've got a. a, a local locally owned hot dog stand so we we did a, a video of our new song at the hot dog stand and and uh, highlighted the, the business and named the owner and then did the same thing for nice to know you a couple weeks back where we were at uh, a, a, an ice cream shop down in the santee and uh and then uh, we've been doing these um promos that have been leading up to this release show on on september 17th at the parkway theater where um, one of our songs is Nice to Know You, so we, we use that lyric, and then we highlight um, our engineer, Troy Foss, who was instrumental in making sure that this album was as wonderful as it was. And so we we talk a, a little bit about him, or we were able to talk about Joe Meyer, our bass player. And, you know, Nice to Know You, here's what this guy's all about. He's key to our success as the International Treasures um, in terms of our recording. Um and then um, the third thing that Ted came up with was these song stories, where every song has a story behind it, and it's got both of our um, kind of both of our perspectives on it. And so um, he's been able to put that out, and uh, we wrote those up uh, before we we printed the album. And now we've got all of these um, things that we can use to draw interest to the album, also draw interest to our uh, release show that's coming up. And so 
so through those that those that three pronged kind of approach, we've been getting good response that way as well. Okay. Now, uh, you know, I really appreciate you guys coming on the show and talking with us. Um, and, you know, we're going to give everyone out there a double shot from your new release. You guys are going to love this. You may just want to turn it up loud. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun tonight. <laughs> Maybe you're on the fence This crazy world stole all your innocence If it ain't bad news There ain't no news at all This is my song, my advice to you Keep your head toward the sky And you'll make it through Headed toward those brighter days I know So leave a little love Leave a little love where you go Go on, let your light Let your bright light show It only takes a spark To make the fire
picture show has been shut down Ain't much to do in this little town Nobody goes outside They won't look you in the eye But that's alright with me I'm not much for pleasantries And I'd appreciate it if you leave me alone Mondays come down harder on me these days Seems I'm waiting around for my life to change changes round here except for the weather goes from rain to snow in a mess life just seems to stick it in and I can't help but notice it's passing me by If I had my wish, I'd wish for something else Anything just to have a story to tell Cause I've never been able to say All the things I want to say About my hopes and my dreams My plans and my schemes Those things that were dear to me That I starved just to feed the beast They seem impossible to me
you filthy animal! <laughs> <laughs>